That's very different than an entitled leader who spends time externalizing blame. They are masters at pointing their fingers at this went wrong because so-and-so wasn't fully on board because I didn't have enough of the right resources because my budget was pulled because, um, this team player didn't show up. And so they're, they excel at not being accountable at not taking ownership for the problems when they go wrong and instead look externally. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. My name is Robert John Boyle. I am the host of the RJB Audio Experience, and this episode is about entitlement. When I first started getting into Gary Vaynerchuk's content, one quote really stood out to me, and that is, entitlement is poison. This is something that Gary talks about religiously. He talks about it all the time and much more frequently in the past two years specifically. And what it forced me to do was to look inward. I am someone who comes from a wealthy community. I am someone who is an only child. I am someone who feels that he is talented, very ambitious, but also has a, a good deal of entitlement that comes along with all of that. And I resolved um, at some point this past summer to start working to unwind that, to start eliminating entitlement from my mindset over the course of several years. So what I decided to do was just do some you know, Google searching. I started looking up content. I started reading articles, um, reading the previews of books, um, seeing what people were posting on social media about this concept. And that is how I came across a Forbes article written by our guest, Cindy Waller. Cindy Waller wrote an article called Why Entitlement is a Leadership Derailer, and I really connected with the article. It made a lot of sense. I saw a lot of myself in it, and I wanted to have her on the podcast so we could talk about entitlement and how people who feel like they are entitled can start to unwind that and eliminate that from their mindset. So that's exactly what this is going to be. We're going to talk about what Cindy does. We're going to talk about why she wrote the article. We're going to talk about the article, but most importantly, Importantly, we're going to talk about a few of the concepts that Cindy recommends to people who feel like they are entitled about how exactly they can go about strategizing and using tactics to unwind that and become better listeners, for example, better collaborators to become less arrogant, the kind of things that can really derail relationships and personal and professional success. So that's what this episode is. I hope you enjoy it. And Cindy, why don't we start by you just telling the audience what it is that you do? I'm a leadership development consultant. I've been in business as a sole practitioner for close to 20 years now. I work with various different industry sectors from oil and gas, energy, pharma, biotech, insurance, financial services, AI, fintech, and various other startups. And my role involves helping align talent and leadership with the strategic direction of the firm or the organization. And so that might involve executive coaching, leadership coaching, succession planning, talent management, and all the various aspects that are required from a leader to be successful and help support the success of the business. Awesome. So it sounds like you're working a lot with people. So talk to us a little bit about how that relationship will start. Will a company reach out to you and say, hey, we'd like you to coach one of our executives. Um, tell us a little bit more about that process. Sure. So it may 
begin in a number of different ways. As you suggest, Robert, it may be that an organization has a particular leader that they want coaching for. The leader may have a new mandate, a new scope, or a new geography, or a different set of stakeholders. And the premise is they may have been successful with a group of stakeholders in the past. They may now have a different group of stakeholders where there are different agendas, priorities, personalities, and how does that leader best navigate what it is they're trying to achieve in the context that everybody has a different set of uh, deliverables and you may not necessarily be aligned with what I need. So how do I influence you and get you to a point where we have a common ground and we are solving for the same kind of problem? So that might be one. Other organizations may want to go through a transformative change. They may be going through uh, M&A activity or growing organically and want a different set of leadership skills and how do they cultivate those leadership skills to best position that organization through the merger and acquisition and as well to create a different level, different culture. So for example, a firm may have had a steady state as they grow through an acquisition. If the intent is to create a growth mindset within the culture, what type of leadership skills are required for a growth mindset that would be different from how they've been operating historically. So going from perhaps a process due diligent type of culture to more of an innovative, creative, or entrepreneurial culture, which does require a unique set of leadership skills that different from how the organization has functioned previously. All right, perfect. Thank you for that background. And then one last question on this. Tell me a little bit about what it actually looks like when you're working with someone. Is it you're meeting on a bi-weekly basis, a weekly basis? Are you communicating via Skype, email? Like what does that coaching process really look like? So great question. It probably takes all those forms. It is bi-weekly. There's also just-in-time coaching. So if a client is going before their board of directors or presenting to their CEO, they may want to do a dry run around the uh, type of presentation, the caliber of the presentation, the content to make sure it's strategic enough, high level enough. And so in addition to the formalized bi-weekly meetings, we may meet in between. And yes, it's all those. It may be texting, Skype, they're for certainly in person, and they. I also have meetings with their executive, at times human resources, talent management, some of their stakeholders. So that way, everybody has a vested interest in having that employee or senior leader be successful. All right. Perfect. Thank you for that. So where I'd like to go next is, you know, we're here to talk about the Forbes article where I found out about you. Tell me a little bit about how you started writing for Forbes and what that process was like and why you wanted to start putting content out. From my point of view, Forbes is a very distinguished uh, media vehicle and speaks to a wide audience of very seasoned, accomplished leaders and as well as leaders who may be identified as high potentials, emerging leaders, and aspire to be part of the Forbes community. So I thought it was a good venue for me to speak to some of the various leadership opportunities and challenges that come my way, and I would have a attentive audience. So as I uh, submitted my first article a number of years ago, I continued to do so and write for Forbes probably anywhere between uh, three to four times a year as amongst other different uh, publications in addition to Forbes. 
All right, that sounds good. So let's talk about the article. Um, the article's title for everyone listening is Why Entitlement is the Number One Leadership Derailer. Um, you know, I'm sure you a lot of these concepts generated in your mind through your experiences working with management and executives. But from your perspective, tell me why you wanted to write this article and why you specifically wanted to talk about entitlement. Of course. So why I wanted to write about it and why I wanted to talk about it is that if you take a cross section of any leadership group, any employee group, um, and this is statistically true within the population at large, there are individuals who are entitled. And if we look at the definition of entitlement, it does mean that that individual feels they are deserving of something usually special, extraordinary, and believe that they are a cut above other people. And whether it's their talent, whether it's their smarts, whether it's their technical expertise, and when leaders show up as entitled, it does a number of things. One, it does act as a derailer because it puts you apart from other people. It doesn't allow you to necessarily collaborate effectively because you are likely coming across as self-motivated or self-interest, which isn't about speaking to the collective win or the team win. As well, when you are entitled, there's a sense of privilege, uh, perhaps you present as being indulged in or just being better, better, smarter, quicker, more strategic, knowing more. And it is off-putting to your peers or your colleagues who feel they are equally smart or sometimes may be actually smarter, but certainly have a point of view and weigh in and want to weigh in. And they don't feel they have the opportunity because they are eclipsed or circumvented by that entitled leader. Okay. And then can you talk about some of the situations that this type of behavior will lead to within an organization? You know, you talked about entitled employees feeling like they're deserving of something. It's harder for them to collaborate. Talk to me about some of the situations that you've dealt with where this actually leads to a situation, a negative situation in an organization. Sure. So all leaders, and particularly the more senior you are in the organization, all leaders are encouraged to have a point of view and a voice. And it is why they are at the table. So the more senior you are, the less reliant you are on your technical expertise, and the more you are on those influencing and impact skills. So an organization does foster employees and leaders to weigh in and contribute. When though, you show up at the table and you believe you are the smartest person in the room, that in itself is truly a red flag. And because what it does is it then causes others to feel that they are marginalized. So if in my practice, a leader is entitled, they will show up as arrogant and they will show up in some ways feeling that they are privileged or special, and they may do a number of things that um, are off-putting. So they may try to vie for their executive's uh, attention by asking for more time, by asking for putting their hand up for a special project, um, wanting to lobby in a more challenging or more forthright way for their own cause, and when they do that, um, 
at the beginning, they may be very smooth, they may be um, very polished and savvy, and others may not see it, but with time, it becomes apparent that there are really aspirational and self-interested in a highly narcissistic manner. Okay, and then talk to me a little bit about that, because a lot of the qualities that you're describing um, sound like qualities of, you know, someone who's like a go-getter, someone who is ambitious. Talk to me about the difference between someone who has a, a, a solid level of ambition and wants to excel in an organization versus someone who's really entitled and thinks that they're entitled to special opportunities and to excel in an organization. It's a fantastic question. So if you are ambitious and aspirational, absolutely. Um, those are qualities that we seek out in leaders and in senior leaders, because it is about wanting to make a difference. It is about wanting to add value. And for those who are aspirational, you think about, well, how can I increase my scope? How can I have a more complex mandate? Because this is how I am challenged. This is how I am going to be measured and the metrics around um, how I do impact. That's different than a narcissist leader who is about wanting to show off their trophies, about, hey, look at me. And their favorite reflection is their own reflection in the mirror that says, look, everybody, I'm so great. And you owe, all of you, my team, others in the organization, owe me um, for my smarts, for my ability to allow you to shine versus leaders who are aspirational and who are not narcissistic are interested in helping profile and create visibility for others. So my clients who are aspirational look, have very much a yes, a need to win, but they do it around coaching and developing others because they are great exporters of talent. They want other people to um, basically be a reflection of them relative to uh, their own achievements, and they position them for greatness versus um, entitled leaders look at it in terms of anyone who surrounds them is fortunate or lucky just by being near them. And that's why others are successful. So, you know, aspirational leaders who are ambitious um, want to seek out opportunities to profile their directs, their peers, because they're proud of that, because they feel that they are a contributor to their success as opposed to created their success. That makes a lot of sense. Aspirational leaders want to lift people up around them, but don't feel like just because people are around them that those people are now better for being around them. Um, exactly. Where I want to go next, um, I want to talk about this difference between aspirational leaders and in entitled leaders in the context of when um, something goes wrong when a project goes bad and there and now people are pointing fingers and blaming others. Talk to me about the difference about how those two leaders would take that kind of situation. I love this question and you're making me smile. <laughs> so in terms of the difference, when an aspirational leader, when something goes wrong, what they usually do is they'll step back and reflect. They'll pull the team in and say, let's step back and go through the steps that we took. Did we socialize our idea? Did we do due diligence? Did we speak in advance to all the key stakeholders to ensure that we've considered all the data points, that we have alignment, that we have them on board before we execute? And where was the missing gap? What are the lessons learned? 
How do we retrace some of our steps and what do we do differently going forward to ensure that we minimize um, the consequences or the implications for the next time around? That's very different than an entitled leader who spends time externalizing blame. They are masters at pointing their fingers at this went wrong because so-and-so wasn't fully on board because I didn't have enough of the right resources because my budget was pulled because um, this team player didn't show up. And so they're, they excel at not being accountable at not taking ownership for the problems when they go wrong and instead look externally. And when you are entitled, you're arrogant. And when you are arrogant, you have very little or minimal self-awareness, minimal insights into the role you've played, and also very little tolerance to look inside yourself. So typically what has, happens with an aspirational leader is that when they are given feedback, an aspirational leader who's well-balanced will step back, have the leadership maturity to course correct. An entitled leader, when given this feedback, usually will deny it, or if they're exceptionally smooth, may agree, say yes, but really mean no, uh, and are threatened by that feedback and don't really take it to heart and don't really change and don't have that agility to approach a situation with a sense of accountability or ownership for it. Thank you for that. And so you know, where I want to go next is it sound, it, it's very clear to us at this point how an entitled employee can really derail an organization or a team. But a lot of this behavior, externalizing blame, lack of self-awareness, a lot of this behavior seems to be inculcated earlier in life. So where I'd like to go next is if you could, you know, hypothesize or tell us some of your thoughts about how entitled behavior starts and, and, and where it comes from, some of the potential sources of it. Sure. So there's a bit of a myth or a misnomer that entitled individuals are related to uh, financial wealth. And that may or may not be the case. For individuals who've been raised with values around uh, indulgence, it may have to do with wealth in that everything was handed to them. And they, from the time they um, are born, they've always flown in first class and they don't even know that economy exists on a commercial airline, that perhaps they are entitled because the world has handed them um, a first class service throughout their entire life and therefore they feel they deserve it. Why should they have anything different? But it may not necessarily be related to any monetary relationship. It may be that one of two paths have happened. They have been indulged in by told by their parents that they're special, that they are extraordinarily attractive, bright, that they're going to be um, extraordinary human beings in the world, in life, and they're going to be thought makers, change agents, and really um, make such a profound impact that they will be noticed by the world at large. And so when you grow up with those kinds of influences, you can believe that you are extraordinary and do believe that other people around you notice that. And when they don't notice it, then there's something wrong with those individuals who don't seem to notice it. How could they miss how special I am? So that's one set of parenting 
circumstances or how individuals are raised. Others who are entitled, it may have to do actually with the opposite experience. So they may be raised with a set of parents who are extraordinarily harsh, where they're told they are inadequate, they are told they're not um, cutting it, that they are failures. And when they come home with eight out of 10 on their test, instead of being praised that they achieved 80%, the parent always says, how did you lose 20%? How did that happen? You know better, you should do better. And so at times, arrogance is actually a mask for a sense of inadequacy and a fear of failure. And those individuals overcompensate and attempt to hide those feelings of inadequacy by a sense of entitlement, by believing they're special. Their egos are actually quite fragile. And it is why when you give an entitled person feedback that's anything less than positive or fantastic, they bristle at that and they usually then alienate or punish the person who does hold up more of a balanced mirror. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about entitlement, obviously they go directly to financial wealth and having things handed to them, but it's not often talked about the other side, the other scenario that you gave where someone could actually start with very little and they were told that they were inadequate from a very young age. And so now they have to compensate for that. Could you talk to me a little bit more about, just go a little bit deeper into how arrogance ends up being a mask for that insecurity and that inadequacy and how that how that plays out in, in professional life. Sure. So when you're feeling vulnerable, it can take a number of forms. If you're feeling vulnerable and fragile because you were told that you are not good enough, then you can be plagued with a sense of self-doubt. And in the workplace, that might show up as um, being timid, as being not um, forthright, not confident, and if you're fortunate, you might be surrounded by mentors, uh, bosses who really stretch you, who really are supportive, who give you an opportunity to show that taking risks is a good thing and that you can um, really excel despite that self-doubt. And with time, hopefully some of those positive risks lead to great consequences and you can overcome that self-doubt. So that's one instance for others, um, the self-doubt is basically too threatening to show um, yourself and the world. And so instead of seeing it as self-doubt because you feel threatened, you do, to use your word, overcompensate. And rather than coming across as confident, as self-assured, as knowing your subject matter expert, you do it exponentially. And so not only are you a subject matter expert, you're the best subject matter expert. You are a foremost authority. You are a leader. You are foundational um, in doing that. You're a change maker. You are that leader who is beyond and not having any peer unparalleled because your sense of yourself is that sensitive and that fragile. And so you end up overcompensating and others around you um, may find you, um, again, um, very unattractive and at times 
um, hard to be around. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, someone who may be listening to this podcast that's listened to what you said and is starting to say, oh, that sounds like me. You know, I might be entitled. I might be an entitled employee. The reason I wanted to have you on is to kind of walk through a process of how someone can start to unwind that entitlement. So where I'd like to go next is, could you talk to me about someone you worked with or a time or a situation where you were working with someone who was entitled and some of the strategies that you both implemented to start unwinding that? Sure. So it's um, funny because one of my clients comes to mind and he is very aware that he is entitled or narcissistic. And he jokes about it because he said, I am a narcissist. And then he said, but who isn't? Mm -hmm. And you know, the point is, is like he almost, you know, said, but so what? And my challenge back to anyone listening to this podcast is, is that it will and it always catches up to you. So even for, for entitled employees who are smooth and um, very eloquent at selling their cause in the guise of um, the collective team end up getting caught out. And it does jeopardize your career. It does mean that it is a derailer and you will then it only go so far or you will need to um, cross the street and go to another organization um, and start and try and start all over again. In terms of strategies, one of the best things to do is to take the data points and the feedback that that employees received. So most organizations have 360 feedbacks, have executive or leadership assessments, have employee engagement scores, where um, their peers and various stakeholders and direct reports weigh in to that individual's leadership brand. And so what are your stakeholders saying about you? And if they are saying that you are entitled and the implications of that, then this is not a sample size of one. This is how you're being viewed. And it is important to start to think about that. So if, you, if an entitled leader really wants to have impact and really wants to influence, then some of the skills involved, first off, stepping back and having active listening skills. So are you giving space around the table for diverse points of view? Do you pause? Do you restate what others are saying? Are you prepared to shift your perspective with different and new data points, meaning that you don't always have the right answer? Even if you have the best answer, there are other approaches, solutions, directions that might be equally as good. Are you prepared to negotiate? Are you prepared to be flexible and be fluid in your point of view? And so those are some of the strategies and communication skills that I have entitled leaders practice when they're in meetings, when they're with peers. We also practice asking for feedback. How do you see me? And how could have I shown up differently or better? Do you see, did you see me in this meeting? Um, weighing other individuals' points of view in terms of um, collaborating or partnering? Or did you see me as running the show? What could have I done differently? How should have I showed up differently? When I'm wrong, do I, do, does that leader apologize and accept accountability for the mistakes they've made? 
So there's two things, the two little nuggets that I want to go deeper into. And the first one is asking for feedback. So a lot of people who may feel entitled, like myself, I feel like I have a certain sense of entitlement. Um, and I'm also very introverted. So what, what were some strategies you could give for someone who feels introverted? It might be hard for them to go and ask for that feedback or solicit that feedback from people who know them well. What are some strategies that you would offer for someone who is a little bit uncomfortable soliciting that feedback? So you're right. I think for sure, if you, if you or anybody is entitled and then introverted, it is quite um, bold to go out there. Uh, and to ask for it. I think though that there are a number of ways to do it. If you have a trusted advisor or, or somebody who you are close to within your firm or your organization, you don't have to necessarily ask the universe, but you might start with that. And usually I'll suggest to a leader to pair up with somebody that they feel safe with, they feel that they are closer to, who's going to give them balanced feedback, who's going to be sensitive, be able to um, give feedback in a way that is candid, but also respects your integrity, is able to do it in a humble and compassionate way, because there's an art to giving feedback. I would certainly recommend that. I also think that if you frame it up in the way that says, I want to be better, better, and that every one of us as a leader has liabilities. Every one of us has opportunities to develop. So in the spirit of that, I'm coming to you to tell me and advise me, what do you think I'm really great at? Where do I excel? And from your point of view, am I leveraging these skill sets in the best possible way? What should I be thinking about? And then what should I be thinking about and what should I be putting into practice of things that I could improve on, opportunities that I have within the context that we all have things that we want to work on to allow us to evolve as better leaders? I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, speaking from my own perspective, like going to people who are close to me and then asking those two questions, right? Like, what are my strengths? Am I using them to my best ability? And then what are my weaknesses and how can I start to close the gap on those? I think are both very important. Um, another thing that you brought up is active listening. Now, this is a skill that's not much brought up when people are thinking about their professional lives. Could you talk to me about what active listening is and some of the strategies and the habits that people can use to start developing those skills? Sure. So there's listening and there's active listening. And where you're going with this is spot on, Robert. So listening means you're just waiting for the person to stop talking so that you can input um, your point of view. Active listening means that you're prepared to listen with the idea that you have something to learn, there's something to gain, and that if you truly are a supporter of diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of perspectives, diversity of input, you're actively listening because you have a point of view that you truly believe can be and should be shaped by different perspectives. And when you watch people at the table who actively listen and you watch the train of thinking, this solutioning is extremely robust. So they may start off with a certain perspective, but at the end of that dialogue or the end of that meeting, there everybody's in a different place because everybody is weighed in and it's a much more fruitful discussion and a richer 
um, solution and action plan that comes out of active listening. Active listening really involves the listener to ask some great questions. Tell me more about that. Um, what are the data points that you have to support that? What, what are you thinking about how we might operationalize that or how we might sell that vision um, to this particular audience? Um, have you thought about any of the implications? What does this mean for us strategically in addition to tactically? So by asking some really pointed good questions, that's a form of active listening too because you're getting the speaker to expand on where they're going, you're diving deeper, and you're now part of that conversation. Right, and also making it clear that you were listening to the previous prompt in your next question really adds, um, it, ma it makes the person who's speaking uh, feel like they're being heard. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Absolutely, because then you're building on what they're saying. Exactly. Um, or I'd like to put a, a bow in this part of the conversation. So could you just talk about the roadmap and just kind of summarize what it means to go from someone who's an entitled employee to really transfer to becoming more of an aspirational employee and leaving some of that entitlement behind them? Sure. So if you're an entitled employee, another way to look at it is that you basically set yourself up to be an individual contributor. It's all about me. How do I win? How do I shine? How do I profile myself? How do I demonstrate to the organization that they made the best hire they ever did because I am an extraordinary contributor? If you shift from that individual contributor entitled persona to an aspirational leader, then you truly believe that your success is dependent on everybody else's success, that you have an ability to be a great storyteller, to inspire, to create a collective momentum towards a team win, and that at the end of the day, you couldn't have done it alone, it's impossible to do it alone, and that you did rely on the aptitude, the talent, the conviction, the motivation, the engagement of your team. And that is an aspirational leader because they've actually brought others along in a very facilitative and engaged way. Perfect. Uh, I really appreciate that very succinct summary. So where I want to go next, I just want to ask, you know, just a few more questions before we wrap up, not even about entitlement, just about some of the work that you do. So in your intro, you said that you work with a lot of, you know, engaging and emerging technologies, AI, voice, all of these kind of things. Could you talk to me about some of the, the technologies that have you excited, some of the things that you're thinking about um, over the next few years? Well, I think um, there certainly are a number of technologies and they all, for me, fit within the um, realm of how to make life more expedient, more efficient. And, you know, eventually when we get to driverless cars, that's one thing that absolutely uh, excites me um, greatly because I think that when we have this perfected, we will have an opportunity to... Um, reduce the number of accidents to take away um, the stress on the roads, the traffic, the high volume on, on the roads as well. In the area of, of um, electricity, um, there will be a number of uh, important advances um, 
if we look at um, the use of um, blockchain and how um, you you know one consumers will be able to um, navigate anything from securing a mortgage to um, uh, global currencies. I think these are all exciting uh, vehicles in the area of, of AI and, and um, technology for sure. And in terms of in terms of you know the leadership that's required, it excites me because these are leaders who um, do have a compelling vision, see the world in a very different way. Um, they are change agents. They are entrepreneurial um, and are highly passionate about um, the impact that they could have on the world and making the world a better place from uh, first world to developing countries. So when I work with those leaders, um, they are very uh, engaging because they have an intense um, commitment to raising the bar and are very excited about what they can do when they um, we're able to be creative and think out of the box. Very good. And I think um, it's going to take a lot of aspirational leaders to get us to that point where we are in a world of driverless cars, because it's not just about the technology. It's also about, you know, dealing with government regulation and dealing with, you know, um, you know, society's taboos around getting into a, a, a car without a driver. So um, I think it's going to be a very interesting decade um, to watch that unfold. Um, one question that I'd like to ask is, let's see, wow, I ju it just kind of disappeared from my mind. I know what it is. Um, you're, you know, we talked before um, we started this interview about some of the, the content plays that you're thinking about making in your own career. Could you talk to me about the next two to three years, what new things that you're trying to do with your own coaching business, what new technologies and modalities you're interested in? For sure. So from my point of view, the further reach, the wider reach, the greater reach that I have, the better. Because I think very few of us understand what great leadership is about. For some people, they come by it naturally and it is intuitive and they excel at it. For others, if they are fortunate to have had a good mentor, a great leader, then they can learn um, by osmosis or more formally by the coaching that they receive. But if you think about how we advance within our own career, all of us start off as individual contributors. If you do a good job, if you are process oriented, if you deliver on time uh, within budget, then you will be rewarded and then you move up the ranks. And then suddenly you are a people manager. So very few people managers have had training on how to be a people manager. Now they need to figure out how to motivate people, what drives them. And if you have a team of anywhere from four to six, six to eight individuals, then you need to understand that not everybody is motivated by the same thing. And so by being able to reach a wider audience through different social media, from my point of view, would help leaders new leaders, uh, soon to be leaders, um, uh, who are people managers really acquire skills more quickly, more efficiently, and would likely have less missteps in their career and ultimately allow the organization to, um, have better returns 
increase their profit margins because that's what the motivation is of, if not all, most organizations. And uh, I really want you to be able to to spread that message wider and specifically the point about people managers understanding that the people that they manage are all motivated by different things. Some people want money, some people want more work-life balance, some people want more of a challenge, and you really have to have those individual conversations to understand what it is that each person wants. So, you know, if someone is interested in connecting with you or learning more about you, where could they find you? You know, where on social media, um, you know, personal websites, just like uh, plug a little bit about where people can find you on the internet. So they can access, if they search my name, they can find me on my website, which is cindywaller.com. Uh, as well, they can find me on my Twitter handle at Cindy Waller. Um, and if they're interested in some of the thought leadership, as you mentioned at the very beginning, Robert, of this podcast, they can find me um, as a frequent writer on Forbes, Huffington Post, CIO Magazine, um, and many other publications, and access some of my thoughts as well. Um, I post regularly on LinkedIn, and they get access um, some of my thinking and perspective is there as well. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time, Cindy. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with um, before we end the podcast? No, I think this was a very inspiring opportunity. And I thank you for your expertise, Robert, and the privilege to work with you today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen to us. See you, Cindy. Bye now. If you're still listening to my voice, number one, I want to thank you for making it all the way through the podcast. I really, really appreciate you taking all of that time. Um, what I want to say, what I want to leave you with is if you've listened to the past 30 minutes of this podcast, I hope you're taking something away and I hope you can turn that into a behavior. So if you're in that mood, if you're in that mindset, if you felt like, wow, I just listened to that and maybe I'm a little bit entitled, maybe I have some things to work on. I think active listening is, is the number one thing that you can take away from this podcast and start working on today in your next conversation in your next 15 conversations. Can you, while you're speaking actively listen to what the other person is saying and ask questions based on their statements. Tell me more about that. I heard you say this. What do you think about this? It's just a really, really easy way to start turning on the active listening part of your brain and show people that you're actually interested in what they have to say and not just waiting for them to finish so that you can add your own two cents on whatever it is that you're talking about. Anyway, time for me to plug some of the other things that I do. If you are interested in me and my content, please check me out on LinkedIn. Go search Robert John Boyle. I post about entitlement. I post about all kinds of things, voice, um, just whatever it is that I'm thinking in a professional capacity on that particular day. And if you are an Alexa user, if you have an Alexa device, you can enable my flash briefing RJB365. Basically what I do is I take all of my podcast content and I turn it into two to three minute chunks. So for instance, some of the things that Cindy said will turn into a two to three minute chunk that I will put onto a flash briefing along with a key takeaway in a way that you can uh, implement whatever it is that we're speaking about in your own life. That's basically the format. Um, it's, it's what I'm thinking about the most right now. You know, I think the podcast audience will eventually become my flash briefing audience. So if you are someone who has an Alexa device, I'd really appreciate it if you could enable RJB 365. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.